Welcome to CPF Firewire, a podcast from California professional firefighters where we discuss a wide range of issues affecting firefighters, our unions, our families, and the communities we serve. Hello and welcome to the CPF Firewire. I'm Brian Rice. I'm the president of the California Professional Firefighters and your host. When it comes to the issues that affect your life on the job as a firefighter, the most important decisions are made in Sacramento. Your local union contract will determine what you get in pay and benefits and working conditions, but everything else that you get to ask for is determined by laws made in Sacramento at the Capitol, and our legislature plays a big hand in that, as does the governor. And this past week closed the book on the latest two-year session of our legislation, and I'm very proud to say that the CPF and your legislative team once again had a very successful legislative session advocating on behalf of all members of the California professional firefighters. We won some major legislative victories in the area of workers' compensation, health and safety, and paramedic licensing reform. We also killed some legislation that could have had a very negative impact on your rights to bargain while on the job as a firefighter. And today we're going to take a look back at what was accomplished for our members in Sacramento, and also discuss why this work matters to you, our firefighters in the field. Joining me today on the Firewire is the best governmental advocacy team in the business. And between Doug and Megan Subers, they have been working on behalf of firefighters for close to two decades, 20 years. Uh, Last year, when our longtime advocate, Christy Bauma, went to work as the governor's legislative director. Doug and Megan took charge and delivered for our members in in ways that we're going to talk about here, but I am eternally grateful for having them on the team and being able to work with them uh, through this last legislative session. So Doug and, and Megan, thank you so much for joining us today on the CPF Firewire. Thank you for having us, Brian. Thank you. I think what I'd like to start with, I'd like to have you start by telling us a little bit about the legislative team's team's work, who is all part of that team, and the scope of what you do, not only on behalf of firefighters, but the volume of issues that you track for us and how that tracking takes place throughout throughout the year. Yeah, I think, Brian, I'll just jump in and then Megan can certainly add. Um, Thanks again for having us today. I think you know, it's an honor to work on behalf of the CPF and be part of the CPF legislative team. And that team is myself, Megan, and also Brittany Trudeau, who's CPF's legislative director. Um, and we really, we work as a team, but the entire team at the CPF from, from you, Secretary Treasurer Lopez, executive board, and the entire staff all really work together to push forward a legislative agenda that benefits firefighters uh, and their families in California. And so, you know, when we, when we talk about, um, the legislature and legislation each year, there's really kind of uh, three three phases, which you've touched on a little bit in the lead in. Um, first, there are certainly the bills which CPF sponsors or co-sponsors, and that's really the proactive legislation that we work on uh, to benefit the lives uh, and, and working conditions of our of members across the state. And then the second kind of element is, is the state budget, which is a huge uh, effort every year to bring together a state budget, which has expenditures that uh, in areas that are important to our mem- uh, to firefighters across the state um, and really can help uh, support local firefighters, state firefighters, 
and others uh, and improve their working conditions or operations of state government. And then the third kind of uh, the third segment or portion of our work is really focused on looking at bills that are introduced each year um, by legislators on issues across the board and really assessing them and how they impact firefighters. And maybe Megan can talk a little bit about um, how we review those bills. And then, you know, as we meet with you every week, Brian, how we kind of go through those bills and determine positions and direction. Sure. Thanks, Doug. So, uh, you know, there are thousands of bills introduced in the state legislature each year in each session. And um, we have a, a process internally where every day during bill introduction time, which is usually typically January, February, uh, or into early March of each year, um, the legislative team, myself, Doug, Brittany, we, we do sort of a first pass at every single bill that's introduced. We look for impacts to our members. Um, any impact to the job of a firefighter in California, we flag. We take sort of a deeper dive on the policy issue in the bill. Um, we contact the legislative office that's authored the bill. We ask for background. And once we sort of collect the, that information, we uh, bring it to President Rice uh, for review and discussion. And that is typically how we, you know, set a bound our, our, our engagement on any issue um, outside of our spon sponsored and co-sponsored legislation. So we sit down with President Rice uh, on, a, on a weekly basis, mostly for the most part, to review bills that have been uh, introduced or amended uh, and talk about the impacts to our members. And then uh, with direction from President Rice, that is that will determine our engagement with that member, with that office, with those sponsors of that bill and determine how we engage to uh, you know, suggest changes to the, the language of the bill, take a position on the bill um, as it moves forward through the process. So that's just like a, a little bit of background into our uh, annual review of bills that are introduced and, and amended each year. When you start out, you're looking at thousands of bills. You guys track those and you keep track of them. How does that go through your tracking process to make sure it stays fresh and in front of you guys for action if needed? So the internal process that we have on the ledge team is in a, a tracking system we use that Capital Community uses called, called Capital Track. And we put certain flags in the system that sort of uh, put them on a list for us so that we have them at our fingertips anytime we need to pull up any bill we're tracking with certain flags, like we need follow-up, we're waiting for follow-up, we've requested a meeting, those kinds of things. That's sort of just our, our internal process that we have to make sure we're not dropping any balls on our end in terms of those bills that we are waiting for more information on, or we're contacting a relevant department or agency to ask for information, or we're, you know, or we're checking with you for feedback. So so that's just a little bit of the, the technical behind the scenes uh, process. You know, as, as a local union president, I'm used to if I got to bash the city manager, that's what I'm going to do. That doesn't work like that at the Capitol. There are too many moving parts. There is just a different level and it's very intricate. And and talk to me about how words matter. And, and even I know I've learned lessons with you all. And if you want to bring one up, I'm fine with that. But words matter. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a really good point, Brian. Like, I think, um, you know, there's always so many bills and so much activity that you're going to, you know, engage with a legislator, you know, on Monday, encouraging them to, you know, consider voting for a bill that's important to CPF. And that's on Monday. And on Tuesday, they may be on another committee and they may be considering a bill that is 
also, you know, important to or supported by CPF or opposed by CPF. And you really have to think about how you, you know, how you maintain relationships with these legislators, how you always, you know, give them, um, try to educate them with clear evidence um, on why a bill makes sense or doesn't make sense, really help them understand what it's like for a firefighter in the field. And also recognize that these legislators are dealing, you know, with thousands of bills and hundreds of issues and and tons of people like, you know, like us for other interests that are that are before them. There's always a lot of stakeholders. There's stakeholders in the labor family that you have to could you continually maintain relationships with, you know, leaders of all the other uh, unions in the, in the California Labor Federation and elsewhere, and then also other stakeholders, uh, you know, employers, local government employers, uh, insurers, um, environmental groups that are worried about forest management, medical system, whether it's the hospitals or other EMS system stakeholders. So there's always, you know, a lot of stakeholders that you're trying to understand where they all are and maintain strong relationships with them because one day you may be disagreeing on something, but the next day you may need to work together to solve a problem for our members. So I think it's a really good point, Brian, about just needing to always think about what you're saying, always think about who you're talking to and how to, you know, say things in a clear and concise way um, and be consistent. September 30th marked the formal end of the 2021-22 legislative session. And over that session, over 5,000 bills were introduced. CPF had 11 that were passed and signed. And if that's okay, I'd like to focus on two of those major priority bills as we move through the podcast. Governor Newsom signed Senate Bill 1127. Um, That's for our members facing job-related cancer or other presumptive illnesses, this is, a, this, is, it, this is huge because it cracks down on the really the cruel and uh, abusive practices of not only employers, but workers' comp administrators. And I had the opportunity to personally testify before two, two legislative committees in support of 1127. Doug, can you walk us through the specifics of 1127, what it does, how it will help our members, uh, who are dealing with endless workers' compensation fights? Just kind of, kind of put a template over that on how this can help us. Just from the outset, you know, you you were hearing from members um, in the field, whether it's through field operations or through local presidents or vice presidents of just the experiencing uh, experiences our members were having, where um, you know they would have job caused cancer or jobs caused heart disease, and we're you know we're dealing with denials. Um, and deal. And then, you know, they're not only fighting their job caused illness, but they're fighting, you know, a system that should be there to protect them, help them get healthy and help them get back on the job. And so what this bill really does is it uh, under current law, the employer has 90 days to determine whether your workers compensation claim was compensable for presumptive injuries. This bill uh, expedites that decision making to 75 days. We hope this will put more focus on presumptive, you know, presumptive illnesses and applications to access the workers' compensation system and get decisions quicker so our members can get treatment and get back on the job. Uh, the second major element of the of the bill was to uh, to reinstitute some some strong penalties to provide an incentive to employers, insurers, third party administrators to uh, to prevent unreasonable denials of claims. Um, these presumptions, the legislature for for some of them decades has determined uh, that these are job caused unless there's evidence to the contrary. And, you know, it would it should be unreasonable if there's no evidence and something is just 
denied just because, and then there's a time for an individual firefighter to fight an entire system. So we really hope it'll ensure that there's new focus and attention paid to the presumptions and firefighters are able to access care, get treatment and get back on the job. And then um, the, the last issue, which I know we'll talk a little bit more about is just about temporary disability. Um, under current law, you have 104 weeks of temporary disability. SB 1127, when it goes into effect January 1st, uh, will increase that for presumptive cancer to 240 weeks and take away an existing timeline that you had to use temporary disability in five years from the first day uh, you were injured. And we have members that are unfortunately have recurrences of cancer. And it's important that that temporary disability is there for them as they're trying to, you know, battle a, a, a disease and, and engage in a fight with a job caused illness that they're going to win and get back on the job. And I'm going to, I, I want to expand a little, even a little bit further on the temporary disability piece. Um, um, Megan, we, we had some very compelling testimony, not just mine, but um, Lieutenant Magali Sadie from the San Francisco firefighters. She literally is ground zero uh, um, for that added portion, the disability portion. Megan, would you, would you touch on that a little bit? Lieutenant Sadie was amazing. We, we, you know, local 798 brought this issue to us on her behalf when she was faced with a reoccurrence of her uh, breast cancer. Um, and she was timed out from using any more of her temporary disability. So thankfully, she had been on the job long enough to have accrued enough of her own sick leave to be able to use when she had to be out of work to get a second um, uh, cancer uh, surgery. The impetus behind this change just made it for a really strong argument that um, nobody could really contend with, which thankfully was the case. And so I think that, you know, this will go a long way for our members who unfortunately are faced with for with the reoccurrence of, of a same cancer diagnosis. Um, and we're hopeful, you know, we're always hopeful that none of our members have to use it, but for the hopefully very limited number of cases, it will be available to them. This piece of that legislation is as much of a blessing to the men and women on this job as as the the penalties and the lowering the timeline and um i'm just i'm super thankful doug and megan to you guys as a legislative team to magali and and members that uh along the way that brought this to the importance of us and how we had to deal with it conversely let's talk a little bit about what some of our um i guess opponents or opposition may have been doing and saying um while we were trying to get this to the goal line. You know, a lot of the the opposition arguments were things like, you know, how are you going to reduce the timeline to 75 days for the investigatory period? Employers aren't even meeting the 90 days. To me, that's a red flag. If you're already not meeting the current law requirement of the 90-day investigatory, then what's the, then maybe we don't need a timeline if you're not going to meet one. One of their arguments was, um, there's no evidence that the the firefighter got their illness or their cancer, or their presumption on the job. Um, that was probably to me, I was personally most offended by that argument because we, that is not how presumptions work. We do not have to provide the employer evidence that we got cancer, got heart disease, 
any of our presumptions. That is the whole point of a presumption. So we don't have to provide that evidence. And that was probably, like I said, the one I was most offended about. They raised concerns and issues with the um, unreasonableness standard. So uh, uh, the penalties, a judge can determine that penalties are appropriate if um, you know there was an unreasonable denial of a claim. They wanted to define what it meant to be unreasonable. And we had to be really pretty assertive that, you know, that is a, a, a legal term of art. It is well-defined in case law. Uh, judges have it within their authority to determine what's unreasonable, what got us over the hump and what really convinced people, what really convinced legislators was, and the administration was having the number of examples and cases that we had, um, being able to Corey, our members early on in the year and asked them to connect us with their workers' compensation attorneys who were able to provide us with lists of cases and examples that they had uh, where the injured firefighter was, you know, drugged through a horrible year-long, multi-year-long process um, and then eventually approved because that was another thing that the opposition would say. Well, these are always normally, you know, over 90% approved. But what they don't talk about, because nobody tracks this information, which is another actual smaller piece of this bill that actually may go a long way, nobody tracks that first initial determination right now. The state does not track if the claim was initially accepted or initially denied and then later accepted. They only track that final determination. So the employers were able to say 90% of these are approved but we don't know how long that firefighter was sitting there languishing through the process um, because they were initially denied. So I think being able to educate the legislature about what presumptions are and having specific examples of injured firefighters to talk to them about um, really, I think, was, was the winner for us. And again, on the TD portion, having someone like Lieutenant Sadie be able to talk about her experience was the game changer for us. And, and here's what's sad. We didn't have to go or look too hard to find members with cancer diagnoses, whether they're in treatment, they're cancer free. There's, there's just a lot of those tragic stories out there. My simple question to an insurer, a third party administrator, this is a 40 year old presumptive. So what do you have that you're going to be able to refute this with? Cause that's your job, not ours. If you don't have anything, these these um, okay should take place in five days or less. That's my opinion. And that's what we need to be driving home um, on our workers' comp counterparts. You don't need 90 freaking days on a, on a cancer diagnosis. This, this bill, this law has been in play for 40 years. You either have it or you don't. The deal is you don't have it. You know that these cancers are caused by the job. And what you're doing is try to, trying to save the money, but you're really costing the employer. So I'm really... Um, happy about where we're at with 1127 and now the second part of it at least for the cpf piece now we need to tune in and how to educate the members on properly using that to get the end results that we're all looking for in the first uh, the first year of the session we were able to get another major victory in the area of paramedic discipline and licensing on ab 450 and this bill balances the scales for firefighter paramedics um, and paramedics who are subject to unreasonable or over punitive discipline at the hands of the state or local EMS agencies. Can you guys tell us a little bit 
not only about what this bill does, but how we believe it'll make that process fairer for our members and, and the effort to get it to the, to the governor's desk and, and, and the amount of work that it took in advocacy to do that. Yeah, Brian, happy, happy to. I think this is definitely, um, you know, an, an issue when when we heard heard you talk about it, representing paramedics that, you know, went through discipline process at their department and then had discipline happen at at EMSA and other individual members that went through experiences like this. But it really showed that we needed to have a system that was fair, a system where uh, peers, other paramedics were part of the decision making um, and and, you know, just have a system that is like a lot of the other um allied health professions and, and, and the licensing bodies that they have. And, and kind of from that perspective, you know, we work together with um, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, who is now, um, you know, left the assembly, but is the chair of the California Labor Federation or executive secretary, I believe is her uh, formal yes. title. And um, she really took, you know, took the lead in working with us to say the state emergency medical services authority should have a disciplinary review board that is made up of of individual practitioners in the field who are paramedics, emergency room physician, and some public members to really have a system to adjudicate um, final determinations of discipline on a paramedic um, and really, you know, talk, be able to talk about the facts and make a determination. And I think so this bill will have, a, you know, a seven member board that is still in the process of being appointed, but appointed by the governor the Senate Rules Committee and the Speaker of the Assembly, and it will be made up of four paramedics, um, an ER physician who is who is not someone uh, who works at a LEMSA medical as a LEMSA medical director or fire department medical director, and then two public members who don't have anything to do with the um, EMS system to really give some balance to a board to fairly consider and adjudicate claims, and and the second big major part, Brian, that that as you know, you you really push for is to have this board look at what the structure of the model that disciplinary orders are and really look at how how do we have progressive discipline many times our members are um you know there's an issue in the field their department um takes consideration of that provides uh systems for more more training for for medics in the field or determines when something was a case of a you know a medic being you know on many continuous shifts and really set up a system where all those things are considered if they're uh, if they're if the licensing body is considering that. So I think that's another big, big thing that will be, um, you know, really set up the structure of how uh, paramedics or uh, any disciplinary things that are brought forward are considered. Not everything goes through the first try or the second session or the third. If you look at community paramedicine, that was an ongoing piece of work for several sessions. Um, Senator Leva's bill on disallowed compensation through CalPERS was the same thing. When a bill doesn't get signed right away, we end up doing one of two things. You either put it through and get it vetoed, or you strongly consider pulling it and not putting it through. Some, sometimes the issue is not ready to go all the way. I think that's part of the, the effective strategy you've implemented, Brian, in, in all of our legislation. And I think we can use SB 278 probably as our most recent successful example. So SB 278 was our bill, uh, 
Senator Leva's bill that CPF um, sponsored working with CalPERS, uh, dealing with disallowed compensation. You know, retired firefighters, uh, just a handful that we know of, were starting to get notified post-retirement that they had disallowed compensation included in their retirement allowance and that they were going to owe, you know, lump sums of money back to to PERS uh, and then, um, you know, reduce their retirement going forward. So I think we worked over, Doug's going to have to help me out here, three different bills uh, were introduced with Senator Leva um, over the last handful of years trying to get at this issue. And SB 278, um, we, you know, was a product of multiple years working with the author, working with CalPERS, working with the employers who were the opposition, uh, trying to find the right balance. We try to do as much engagement in advance with the administration, with all the impacted agencies. Again, this in this case, it was CalPERS, working with the governor's office, with the relevant uh, policy consultants in the governor's office to try to find the right balance. And at one point, they just said, you know, we're not we're not there yet. We haven't, we have, we're not sure we've found, we're comfortable with the solution you've put forward to date. We need more time. And I think uh, sometimes if you feel like, you know, we have enough leeway that it's, it's at least a discussion, a consideration that president rice and the board uh, with obviously with, with some of our um, guidance, we'll try to determine if it's the right time to push pause the legislative session is a defined period of time. And sometimes if you can't come to that resolution between January and September, January and August, when the bills are sent down to the governor and you're in the middle of a two-year session, sometimes it makes sense to just put it on hold. It's not dead. It's still very much alive. You can come back in January, finish up any remaining negotiations. And even in the interim, in the fall, you can continue those negotiations so that when you come back in January, you can work with the author and the relevant stakeholders and the governor's office to ensure a successful, uh, you know, a bill is successful when it makes it. You don't ever know. You never know 100%. You can work with all the relevant impacted agencies and stakeholders and governor's office every day for a year, and you still don't ever know for sure. Um, but it at least gives you some sense, I think, of comfortability that you've put in as many hours as you possibly could um, to try to find a workable solution that still protects your members and still is implementable for this state, which I think is what ended up happening with SB 278. Um, and why it ended up being successful after multiple tries, but again, being able to push that pause button, keep working on it, and then send it down. I'm going to touch on AB 1993, which was a vaccination mandate, and um, our strong opposition here. It wasn't so much that it was a vaccination mandate, although that goes against what our um, position has been on vaccine. It was really when you stopped and looked at it, it was a gutting of the meet and confer process in the state of California. And that was one of the things that we discussed, not only with the author, um, but you had me um, and we reached out to every member of the labor committee. And it, it the issue in itself, we all know how polarizing um, vaccines and COVID and everything is, put that off to the side. It was the discussion on our core values to make something like that mandatory when almost every local in the state, with the exception of a couple, um, had an agreement that they were working by and behind and it was working. And that would have thrown all of it out the window. 
collective bargaining is a cornerstone of uh, the union movement. And a bill like this not only would would inhibit our ability to collectively bargain over an issue like this, it would cut it out. And, and it's a core value. And, and that is what really hit with legislators. This is California. And we have an expectation that we have a right to bargain. I think what you said is probably the reason why we were able to get to the end result that we got is that we were focused on the policy implications of the proposal. The The issue is so hot button, uh, so sensitive, The you know, the issue of vaccines. And so, you know, I, I think it's appropriate to have some of that be discussed, but I think the fact that you were able to focus and have us focus on the policy implications of the proposal going forward and the precedent setting it would have to circumvent the local collective bargaining process with a mandate like this is really why um, we were able to, you know, why the bill didn't move forward um, because of CPF's engagement on that point and some of the other public safety groups that engaged on that point as well. I mean, to your point, we were able to go, you were able to talk to the author, we were able to go talk to all the members of that committee pretty quickly and give them examples, again, of the locals in their district that had already met and conferred and had a process in place that were going to be stripped if this bill were to move forward. There was no exception uh, as it was you know, proposed at the time for any of those um, local, whether they were vaccine mandates or vaccine or test mandates or no mandate at all. It didn't take into account any of those things that had already been bargained locally. And also, like I said, just the precedent setting of going forward and, and kind of the idea that we fight as a labor union for local collective bargaining every single day. And if this were to move forward, what would be coming next and how easy it would be to kind of chip away at collective bargaining? I think it was just really being able to focus on the policy impact that the proposal would have had and then your relationships um, and your ability to talk to the author and talk to the members of that committee um, on those points. And I think the only thing I would I would add um, is that you and the executive board kind of set up a clear policy that through all the pandemic, I mean, so much we haven't ever seen before that we we're going to protect the members' rights to you know collectively bargain, to meet and confer over the impacts and effects of changes um, in their working conditions or the contract. And kind of that we, we were consistent on that. And we talked to a lot of people, you know, a lot of legislators about um, about those those issues. And obviously our locals, you know, engaged their local employers and had had agreements. And I think um, a lot of that work that was done through the pandemic, a lot of engagement um, that our locals had in talking to each other and talking to you and, and you know, just kind of really um set the stage to help to, to help us push back on something that would have undermined their rights to their rights to bargain. And I think you said it at the outset of uh, this podcast, Brian, like, you know, part of it is what the laws can set up the structure of how um, our members can go bargain at the at the table. And, and we constantly are, you know, you're constantly uh, ensuring that we work to protect those those rights. It's just it's so interesting and in, and in, in how intricate um the job is and and ushering or nurturing a bill um, through the system, and you know, kind of on the day to day stuff, you guys do and see 
things on a day-to-day basis that if, if you're not there doing the job, you really don't know. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of the um, partnerships that, that get formed, some that get stressed, you know, how that works. Tell me about some of your experiences um, within the capital doing the, the work of being an advocate. Yeah, I think, you know, it's really interesting. I think we, there, there's a, there's a group for everyone and everything. And, 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 and we, um, we really uh, pride ourselves on maintaining our strong relationships. And it starts, you know, starts with you with having strong relationships with our brothers and sisters and other unions at the leadership level. And then, you know, on the, on the kind of advocate level, we work with um, our fellow counterparts at different unions um, every day. And we really, and we really try to, whether it's uh, before a bill is introduced or after a bill is introduced, we always try to engage those partners to understand, you know, this is what we need to get done to protect firefighters in California. How can we work with you to achieve, achieve that in a way that doesn't negatively impact any, you know, anyone or, or helps, helps, you know, our fellow workers at other organizations. Um, And that partnership and, and dialogue is just so, so important because one of the things you never want to have happen is to you know surprise uh, some of the stakeholders we work with every day. And the other thing is when you're you know you've uh, educated uh, a legislator on an issue and they're going to take on a bill, um, the last thing you want them to do is be surprised by opposition from you know someone they didn't expect or or from another friend. And so it's really important to have that dialogue and discussion and really have relationships with every type of stakeholder. And, and I would say that it goes to not, not just, you know, other labor organizations, but also having, you know, dialogue and, and maybe we don't always agree with folks that are, you know, work on other issues that we work on, whether it's, you know, uh, organizations that represent local government employers or organizations that represent like workers' compensation interests. But trying to maintain open dialogue, even if you're going to disagree with those folks, is important because sometimes you hear things that say, oh, maybe we can, you know, reach an end without having to disagree. And so I think it's just that's really, um, really important to just kind of have that open dialogue and constantly be talking to folks and meeting with folks to really understand where they are. How important is it for you as our day to day advocates in the Capitol to have local union leadership and members answer the call when you put it out for them um, to either testify or be present. I'll start with you, Megan. How important is that? It is the most important, I think, for for, for our day-to-day engagement on, on the behalf of you and, and behalf of all the members. Um, I mean, I think I've mentioned a couple of times, even just in this conversation, the, the ability to pull locals into conversations, into hearings, pull their examples, be able to present them to their local elected official. Um, All politics are local. I feel like I use this term and it's kind of cheesy, but it is so true. Um, And I think that that carries in our statewide legislation conversations here, being able to um, localize it for the state elected officials. Um, and I think that that is one of the the most beneficial things I've noticed in my years working on behalf of CPF is the ability for this organization to 
um, personalize those relationships locally at the local union level. Most of the elected officials that we get here in Sacramento were elected to a local city council, a water board, a fire board, something locally first. Um, and so they knew our local president and our local leadership first, and that's who makes the connection to us and makes the connection to our amazing political department and Shonda Wesley and Christine Harms, and they sort of hand them off to us at some point to meet. And so it really is uh, cultivating those relationships locally with the local union that translates into CPF. They feel like they know us by the time they get here already. Um, and so our ability to go in and meet with them on a specific issue and say, you know, your local union president, give give here, give him or her a call, ask them about this. Um, and they take their calls. Our locals are amazing. They anytime we call, text, can you call a legislator? Can you call this person? Oh yeah, sure. No, I had dinner with them last night. Like it is amazing. Um, and I, I honestly, I know, you know, this is part of the work of any statewide union, but I have yet to see the impact of it at the level I've seen CPF be able to kind of translate it and our locals be able to translate it into the work we do here at the state level. Um, so I just think um, it is, it is how we do our job, those local relationships um, being able to translate for us up here in Sacramento. No one tells the the story or the experience better than the firefighter that's been through it. So whether it's a firefighter themselves or their member that's been through workers' comp or a president who's defended their member um, in a in a hearing or a member who has been you know on a wildfire or in a structure fire or at an EMS incident, there you know we really take everything that our members are telling us and describing and help translate it for legislators day to day. But it's different when you can talk about the experience and the scene or the event that, that uh, a local leader was on. And, uh, you know, we're just really honored to work uh, on behalf of the men and women of the fire service that, you know, do an amazing job every day and and, um, and really step up when we know that their, um, you know, their activities as it relates to their local are often in it, you know, are almost always in addition to their everyday job as a firefighter. And it's really, uh, we're really lucky to just have people that are so committed to the men and women of the fire service. I'm, I'm with both of you guys and, and Megan, what you, what you said about um, our legislators take members calls for the local president. And that is so true. And, and Doug, I've been in there, you know, I've, I've actually been through testimony with both of you, but even as a, um, a 30 year firefighter and I've testified as a firefighter, nothing grounds me more than sitting next to, um, Magali, Lieutenant Sadie, um, uh, or Trevor Walsh, um, at, uh, at, at a Cowper's and was it Trevor? I think it was, I don't remember. I, I get, I've done enough of them, but, but when you sit with a uniformed member and they are telling the story of what is happening, there is nothing more compelling or powerful than that. And the interesting part on the issues that we, that we battle, um, we don't find, you know, that one in a million that had this experience. All you have to do is put a phone call out to locals and, and we'll end up with a dozen, you know, contact any one of these folks and hear their story. You know, so that that's what really satisfies me that um, when we put a call out, when you guys put a call out for an issue, whether it's workers comp, 
um, uh, COVID, any kind of a presumptive cancer, working conditions, the number of responses we get back of willingness to testify, that, that, even, that even tells us more as a team, um, we're on the right track with this issue. You know, it's not just a one-off, it's an issue. And I think with that, I'm going to start to close up. Doug, Megan, is there anything that either of you would like to add before I close this up? Just thanks for having us, Brian. This was uh, this was my first podcast, so I had fun. I thank you guys for being there, Doug. Anything from you? Thanks, Brian. I just um, you know it's an honor to work up on behalf of all thirty thousand um, CPF members, and I just wanted to um, flag for everybody that the legislative conference is coming up in May of twenty twenty three, and just you know it's so important to, that you're come up to Sacramento if you can and share your. Uh, your voice and perspective with legislators in the Capitol, a lot of new folks being elected, and it should be uh, a really great event. So just thank you for having us today. And I I think that those of you that are uh, listening, you have a little bit of a sense of why we think our advocates are the best in the business. And Doug and Megan, I just want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. And Brittany, um, and Alyssa, the rest of your team, um, and your team is pretty big because at any one time, any one of us are a member of that team. And I just want to, I just truly want to thank you, um, Doug and Megan, for your leadership, your counsel, your guidance, and your ability to, to really see everything. Um, it's priceless, and it's priceless for us as, as the men and women of the fire service Um, And we are truly blessed to have you um, as our advocate. So with that, I want to thank everyone for listening. And I hope you'll join us again soon on the CPF Firewire. Thanks all. We're out. You can find CPF Firewire at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you find podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. You can also find CPF Firewire at the CPF website, www.cpf.org, and on the CPF YouTube page. We're always interested in getting your feedback, comments, and criticism. Tell us what you'd like to hear about. Drop us a line, info at cpf.org. CPF Firewire is a production of California Professional Firefighters. Our producer is Carol Wills. Our engineer is Matt McDermott. Please join us next month for another edition of CPF Firewire.